The God of the Bible is the perfect father who always does what is best. He may allow suffering, but he always gives grace. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Thank you, Marty Buck, fellow students. We're going to do one final um, roundup, if you will, no pun intended, of the book of Job. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll start uh, Philippians and Colossians. We've been in the book of Job now for a couple of months. Most of you have been with us, and I'd like to summarize some of the key lessons we've learned and we can apply. Job is a book that has much to teach us today, and we're just going to dive right in. Our first principle is very simple, very clear, and very powerful. God is sovereign over everything all the time. That is something that you need to remember wherever you are because your circumstances will cause you to doubt it. God is sovereign over everything all the time. Sovereign means supreme ruler. A sovereign is a king who is, has absolute control over everything, everyone, all the time, every place. God is always in control, and he's always in control, especially when things seem out of control, which is most of the time in our lives. God controls even bad things like sin and Satan and suffering. See, God allows many things he does not approve of. Obviously, he allows us to make choices, not all of which he approves of. Yes? Say yes. But he gives us the freedom to make those choices. But he uses all things, even bad, sinful choices, to accomplish his good purposes. So we noticed in the book of Job that God uses everything, even the evil of Satan, to fulfill his plans. Remember in the beginning of the book, we get a glimpse of heaven, behind-the-scenes look in heaven, one of the few cases where we do the first two chapters of Job. And we hear Satan accuse both God and Job. Satan accuses Job of being a mercenary. He says, the only reason you serve God is because God blesses Job with health and wealth, peace and prosperity, and the only reason Job served God was for the goodies that God provided him. And then Satan turns around and accuses God of being unworthy of human worship. He says, God, the only reason people worship is you have to buy them off. You have to pay them to worship you. You have to give them the goodies, the health and the wealth, the prosperity and the peace, and then people will worship you. But you're not worthy of worship unless you pay for it. Now, to varying degrees, all the characters in this drama, Job, Job's wife, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, all of these characters all believe to one degree or another that God's relationship with people was based on the law of retribution. The law of retribution says... God treats you like you treat him. If you obey God, he is obligated to bless and prosper you. And if you disobey God, he is obligated to punish you and discipline you. And all of that happens in this life in real time. 
One of the things Job, the book of, should convince us is that God is not ever obligated to anyone for anything, anytime, anywhere, because he's sovereign, which means he's sovereign over everything. Satan, angels, nature, human circumstances. There is nothing going on in the world today that God is not sovereign and in control of. And God's sovereignty involves God's plans. God is a planning God. Believe it or not, he has a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So God has plans, and surprise, surprise, they're good plans. One of the most astonishing things that occurred in my life was when I realized God's plans are better than my plans. How astonishing is that? Because little self-centered Brad here thought his plans were really, really good. The challenge for us is, is God's plans usually go beyond our understanding. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight, because we don't comprehend God's plans. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying no matter how big your imagination is, humans can't even begin to imagine, to visualize, to comprehend everything that God has planned for those who love him. And God's eternal plan, obviously, we talked uh, last time or in previous times about God's eternal plan, but his primary plan for you and I in this life is very simple. He plans to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 is an oft-quoted verse, and it's usually misunderstood. And it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is his good purpose? Verse 29 answers the question. For whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God causes all things. That's the power of God. To work together for good. That's the plan of God. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, these are the people of God. So the power of God works out the plan of God for the glory of God and the good of God's people. Amazingly enough, many times we're in circumstances that are not good. How many of you have had circumstances this week that you would say, that was not a good circumstance? At least one per day, about in the morning and the afternoon had one too, right? Get that phone call. And God causes even not good circumstances to work out for good. Now, the good is described here is God's goal to make us more and more like Jesus. So everything that he allows in your life is designed for the purpose of shaping us more and more like Jesus. Now, here's the hard lesson of Job, and it's the hard lesson for us. Becoming more like Jesus requires... Troubles, trials, problems, pain, adversity, adventure. Requires, non-optional. It's like a recipe. You ever had a recipe and you cooked it up and you realized you left out an ingredient and that's why it tasted really bad? You don't get the desired result. You know, most people don't drink vinegar straight up. But it's an essential ingredient. 
and things like salad dressing. Suffering is like vinegar. It's an essential ingredient that God uses in order to accomplish his goals for us. And one of the best Old Testament illustrations of God's sovereignty is Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. He's going to probably inherit the home Kimona because he's the favorite son, but he gets sold into slavery by his jealous brothers when he was 17 years old. He's taken to a foreign country by slave traders called Egypt. He literally thought he was never going to see his family again. To go from the inheritor, the favorite son, to a common slave in a foreign country. As a slave, however, Joseph was diligent, he was faithful to God, and as a result, he was promoted to manage the entire estate of Potiphar, that was his master, who happened to be the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. However, when he refused the advances of Potiphar's wife, she accused him of rape and he was thrown into prison. Things are not getting better, just in case you wondered, right? So God blessed him in prison, and soon he was managing the entire prison. God gave him wisdom to accurately interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's chief butler and chief baker. Remember, where they were thrown into prison for a conspiracy? And he did that. And when his interpretations came to pass, both of them got out of prison. One was killed, one was restored, and the butler forgot about him for another two years. This does not sound like faithfulness is being rewarded really well, right? He's stuck in prison. One night, Pharaoh has a bad dream. And then the butler's amnesia receded, and he remembered that Joseph had accurately interpreted his dream, and they call him out of prison, he gets cleaned up, and he interprets by God's help Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh promoted him from prisoner to prime minister with a word. Later on, his brothers who come to Egypt, they sold him into slavery. They were worried that their brother, who is now the prime minister, not their kid brother, would retaliate and pay them back. And Joseph acknowledges one of the most eloquent statements of the sovereignty of God when he tells them in two places, Genesis 45, 5, and now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Genesis 50, 20, and as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now what I want to do is take this drama and I want you to see it in light of God's sovereign overarching plan. So what was God's plan? Well, God's big plan is he loves people and his plan was to redeem the human race from the slave market of sin and reconcile their broken relationship with him. See, God wants a relationship with people, but our sin has separated us, so that relationship is not possible unless the sin problem is dealt with. So God's overarching plan is, how do we reconcile mankind to me so we can have the relationship I created humans to have? Part of that plan is God wanted a people group to represent him here on earth. And so he called Abraham and made the nation of Israel from Abraham's descendants, and they were going to be the kingdom of priests which means the go-between. They were going to represent God on earth. So the people of the earth, the nations of the earth, could actually see in flesh and blood how God operated, what his character was like, what his conduct was like. So God was going to invest himself in this people group who would represent him 
here on earth so that they could see what God was like and be reconciled to him. And God needed a place to put those people. And that place was called Canaan, which was geographically central to three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. It was the land bridge. If you wanted to get to any of those three continents by land, you went through Israel. So people would be in contact with God through the nation of Israel. But first of all, God had to grow Jacob's family into a nation. And he needed an incubator for that nation. And the nation he chose was Egypt. So God's got to get Jacob's family into Egypt. How do you get Jacob's family into Egypt? Well, God uses human choices, both good and bad, to fulfill his divine plans. So his brothers sold Joseph into Egypt as a slave out of jealousy, and God used their evil choices to get Joseph into Egypt because the only way to get Joseph into Egypt was by force. He wasn't going to volunteer to leave daddy and go to Egypt as a slave. So God used the evil choices of his brothers to get him into Egypt, and that involved suffering. Then God used an accusation of rape to get Joseph into prison. More suffering. Why did Joseph need to get to prison? Well, God had already arranged the divine appointment in prison with Joseph and Pharaoh's butler and baker. So God used the conspiratorial evil plans of the butler and baker who were trying to knock Pharaoh off to get them thrown into prison to meet Joseph. And then God gives Joseph divine insight to correctly interpret their dreams. But Joseph's forgotten. More trials, more troubles. Two years later, in God's perfect time, Pharaoh has a nightmare. Wonder where that came from. See, the Holy Spirit gave him the dream pretty clearly, and Pharaoh calls for Joseph to interpret his dream. God uses Pharaoh to make Joseph prime minister of Egypt so that he can organize Egypt to prepare for what? Seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. God had planned for Joseph to store up all the surplus grain to feed people during the famine. How did God get Jacob's family out of wicked Canaan into Egypt? Hunger. A famine. Back in the day, you just didn't call Uber Eats and they delivered you went to where the food was, which means you went to where the rain fell. You didn't bring the food to you. They didn't have diesel trucks. You went to where the food was, so migrations during famine were very common. So God used a famine to get Jacob's family out of wicked Canaan into Egypt. And God kept them in Egypt for 400 years, and how did he do that? Slavery. He kept them there for 400 years. Why 400 years? He needed to grow them into a nation. They came in as 70 people, they left us two million. God allowed them to be painfully enslaved. Why would he do that? Well, if they weren't enslaved, would they be willing to leave the land of comfort and security and success to go across the wilderness and fight battles and take the promised land? Sometimes God allows pain in your life to move you off your blessed assurance to where he wants you to be. And those are painful times, and we don't like those times. But God loves us too much to let us sit where we are. If he wants to move us someplace, sometimes he's got a way to put a pitchfork in our spinal column and move us from point A to point B, and the only way to get it done is through pain and suffering and being uncomfortable. 
and we go, God, wham, 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 and God says, you don't understand it, trust me. See, God was working all things together for Israel's good to accomplish his plan of divine redemption, and Joseph has to get sold into slavery to make that happen. And Joseph knows none of this. And God is doing exactly the same thing in your life as we speak, and we don't know what he's got planned 5, 10, 15, 20 years. You may be going through experiences today that you have no comprehension of, and God is going to speak to your grandchildren through your experience that 30, 40 years from now when you're in heaven, he'll be operating and accomplishing his purposes through your grandkids, and you are clueless. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, Joseph and this process involved betrayal and deception. Joseph's brothers told their father for 20 years that he was dead. He wasn't dead. They lied to their father's face for 20 years. That's wicked. God used it for good. Slavery, rape charges, prison, famine, migration, 400 years of slavery, and then 40 years in the desert. And even then, they had seven years of battle to conquest before they took the promised land. Sometimes God's will, his sovereignty, involves suffering. This process of God getting a nation to represent him to the world involves centuries. You know, long-term pain, long-term gain is worth short-term pain. God is like a physician who rebreaks a badly healed, crooked, broken arm, short-term pain, and then sets it properly so it'll heal correctly, long-term gain. Our problem is we don't care about the long-term gain. We just want the short-term pleasure. God is working for eternity. You know, today, God is accomplishing his sovereign purposes on planet Earth, and one of his tools is this tiny little virus. And he is not the author of this virus, but he is using this virus to reshape society, national priorities, individual priorities, family structures, church orientation, and it's one little tool in God's toolbox where he is taking something that is evil and he's using it for good and we don't see 99.9% of what he's doing. We only see the disruption. God is faithful. He's accomplishing his purpose in our individual lives as well as nationally. So how should we respond to God's sovereignty? Well, Joseph's example is pretty instructive. Joseph said, you intended it for evil. Has people ever intended evil against you? Of course. Can God work through their evil choices to accomplish his good? Of course. See, Joseph saw and submitted to God's hands over all things, even when he didn't understand what God was doing. It's easy to look back and say, well, he said God meant it for good. Now he's prime minister, of course. Believe me, he didn't know that when he was in prison. And he was still faithful in prison up until God promoted him. See, he trusted God to do what was right, even in adversity and hardship, and we should do the same. Principle number two, suffering is inevitable in a sinful world. I also wanted to say unavoidable in a sinful world, but God uses troubles and trials to purify us from pride and deepen our relationship dependency on him. Suffering is inevitable in a sinful world, 
But God uses troubles and trials to purify us from pride and deepen our relationship, our dependency on Him. See, suffering should not surprise us. We should expect it. It's normal in a fallen world. Satan declared war on God and God's people, and he uses every opportunity to create death and destruction. And God allowed Satan to tempt Adam and Eve, knowing what the outcome would be. Does God allow Satan to tempt you today? Of course. He tempts you night and day, and that's allowed by God. See, when sin entered the world, it separated humanity from God, who's the source of everything, all life and all goodness. So when you're separated from God, when the planet's separated from God, you have suffering and death and sorrow, etc., etc. Remember, God told Eve what? Childbirth is going to be painful. That's an interesting question. wonder what would have happened if they hadn't sinned. There probably would have been no pain in childbirth. And, you know, Adam wouldn't have to toil in back-breaking labor to produce enough food to eat. That's part of the consequence of sin is suffering. God's original purpose in allowing Job to suffer is told to us in, the, in obviously, chapters 1 and chapter 2. It was to demonstrate to Satan and all the angels that God was worthy of worship. Satan had charged God, the only reason Job serves you is because you bless him. God says, fine, take it all away. All of it. And let's find out if Job will worship me even if he has nothing except his life. And Job's loyalty to God in the middle of all that suffering and loss shut Satan's mouth. It demonstrated to Satan and the angels that God is worthy of worship and God's creatures will worship him because he's worthy of it regardless of rewards. I want you to think about the things Job lost. Tom Constable is a Bible scholar, and he lists eight things that Job possessed and then lost. He lost his wealth, all of it. He lost his health, virtually all of it except his life. He lost all ten of his children. He lost the support of his wife. He lost the support of his friends. He lost his own sense of self-worth as a human being. He lost all sense of contact with God, and he lost his sense that God was just. All he had left was himself and his belief that God existed. He felt completely cut off from God. And yet he didn't curse God, he never turned his back on God, and he had no clue why he was suffering. We read the book and we go, well, it's pretty clear why he was suffering. Yeah, we saw it in chapters 1 and 2. Job didn't know that. There are things going on in your life now that you have no idea why they're happening. All you know is you'd like God to get rid of them like yesterday. God has purpose in everything that he allows to happen. Everything. Because we are his children. And it raises one of the themes in Job is the age-old question, why do the godly suffer? Tom Constable notes that each character in Job came up with a different answer. Job's wife said people suffer because God's unfair. Some people come to that conclusion today. Job's three friends says God is People suffer because God is punishing them for their sin. Job said God wants to destroy people because of their sin. Elihu says God wants to educate people because they're ignorant. And the Bible says that Satan wants to destroy people, but God wants to develop people and then use them to demonstrate his glory to a watching world. So the first reason Job suffered was to demonstrate to the entire host of heaven that God is supremely valuable and worth worshiping. And God entrusted Job with that suffering. 
So what is God entrusting you with today that you would like to give back to him and say, I, I really want you to take this off my plate? Is he entrusting you with suffering? Is he entrusting you with difficult people? Sometimes you're married to them. Is he entrusting you with hard financial times so you learn to trust him? Is he, is he trusting you with sickness? Is he entrusting you with fear because we live in a world that is literally coming apart at the seams? I don't know what he's entrusting you with, but he's entrusted us with himself. He's entrusted us with his word. He's given us his spirit. He's entrusted us with the promises that says, heaven is yours, guaranteed, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's entrusted us with the resources to cope with whatever he's given us. The second reason God allowed Job to suffer was to purge the pride from his heart. And it lay dormant for some decades, and now it showed up. Job was so convinced he was right, he accused God of being unjust. He had developed a terminal case of self-righteous pride because he didn't think he deserved to suffer. How many of you are convinced that you don't deserve to suffer? Yeah, I didn't think any of you would raise your hand. But the truth of it is, we all think we don't deserve to suffer. God, me, c'est moi. I mean, I'm a nice poison. How about that schmuck over there? You know, lay it on them. Why me? Yeah, right. Well, he also demanded to know why he was suffering. He was so angry with God, he swore he was going to take him to court. File a lawsuit against God. Yeah, you need a good attorney for that one. Job 13, he's talking to God and he says, make me know my transgressions and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job 23.3, oh, that I knew where I might find him, then I might come to his seat, his throne, and I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Would God contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, he would surely pay attention to me. Whoa, who's large and in charge here? You know, we look at this, and the truth of it is, most of us have thought some degree of this. We've really not come to God and said it out loud, but we're going, you know, if he was right here, I'd tell him what I thought. Here he knows. So never insist on your own righteousness at the expense of God's justice, because pride is a spiritual cancer that exalts self above God, and God uses suffering as a divine scalpel. That is, divine, that is designed to surgically cut away anything that doesn't honor God first and foremost. Jesus commanded us to do radical surgery on ourselves, Matthew 5, 29. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you than one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Jesus said to Job and to us, you should hate sin badly enough that you're willing to pay any price to get rid of it. We should pursue holiness at any price because Jesus is worth more than anything else. So God used suffering in Job's life and he will use it in our lives to refine us, to purify our hearts, to cleanse our motives. Bad news is suffering is painful. The good news is we have divine help. Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome 
the world. I want you to notice it says, in this life we will have tribulation. It doesn't say you might have tribulation. It doesn't say if you're really good you can escape it. It says you will have it. And tribulation means adversity and woe and trouble and pain and misery and problems. And that is part of God's promise to us. But, he says, in me, in Christ, you will have peace. Not in your circumstances. You will have peace in me, in Christ. See, we all long for a pain-free existence, right? We want comfort and peace and all those wonderful things. And you know something? You're going to get them. But you have to die first. <laughs> Heaven contains everything we long for. That should not surprise us. We were made for heaven. This world is not our home, and we know that, but we need to be reminded. And one of the nice things about suffering is it reminds us that this world is not home. As your body begins to fall apart, and it is, God is preparing us to leave. And when we get close, we're glad to leave because this body is such a pain, right? So one of the reasons God preps us for heaven is he allows this life to become less and less peaceful and less and less home. Jesus brings peace today in the middle of the storms. He didn't say he's going to take away the storms, but life has plenty of storms. We got lots of broken relationships. We got sickness, financial troubles family feuds, blue versus red. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. So the storms are going to rage. But God is stronger than any storm. You have to remember that. God is stronger than any storm. Since we have divine help, what should we should do? We should cry out to God for help. When we're experiencing problems and trials, Jesus said, in me you have peace. Well, call out to him. He will give you peace. We should depend on him and trust on him because, principle number three, the God of the Bible is the perfect father who always does what is best. He may allow suffering, but he always gives grace. The God of the Bible is the perfect father who always does what is best. He may allow suffering, but he always gives grace. See, when we read the book of Job, we think it's all about suffering. It's really not. It's really not about Job's circumstances. It's really all about the character of God. The real story of Job is that it illustrates the relationship between God and people. And it reveals that the basis of God's relationship with people is grace, not retribution. The law of retribution, of course, says that God always pays someone back in kind according to what they give him. Now, if you believe that God always pays you back in kind for what you give him, it's really just a small step to believing that as long as I trust and obey, God owes me earthly blessings, peace, prosperity, health, and wealth, because I have been obedient. What that does, it puts us in control, and it obligates God to us, and that ain't going to happen. Now, it is true that God created the moral universe. And usually, God does bless obedience. Usually, he does. And he usually does discipline disobedience in this life. But not 
always. Our Father does what's best according to what? His infinite wisdom, not according to our limited perspective. See, if God paid us according to what we gave him, we'd experience his wrath because we're sinners. But God is merciful, and he gives us grace. And the last four or five chapters of this book we went over a couple of weeks ago, 38 to 41, God is demonstrating his power by asking Job 70-plus questions, but he also shows his grace and how he creates and manages his universe. One of the basic things he did is he created planet Earth for us by design. Isaiah 45, 13. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. So the purpose of the planet was for people. It didn't happen by accident. It happened by design. So God's creation not only reveals his power, but also his grace and his care for people. Remember in the last couple of weeks, God says, Job, I created the earth. I created the sea. I created the darkness. I created the sun. I created the stars and the galaxies and the water cycle and the rainfall and the snow and the ice, and I provide food for my animals. I oversee them as they bear young, even though you don't understand it. I make some of these animals untamable. I make some of these animals strong. I even make animals stupid, like the ostrich. I make some of them able to fly. He's talking about the eagle and the hawk. He says, Job, I created Behemoth and Leviathan. Remember, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, which you can't tame, you can't control. They're much, much larger than you, but I control them and I care for them. So Job, if I can control my universe and my animal kingdom, don't you think I care for you? Don't you think I show grace to you? Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 9, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? He says, look, your heavenly Father is the perfect Father. You are sinful fathers and mothers, and yet if your children ask you for something, won't you do what is right for them? Won't you give what is good for them? Won't you give them what they need? Well, of course. Well, if you then, fallen sinful fathers and mothers, are going to do what's right for your children, how much more will the heavenly Father not give you what you need? We're like two-year-olds who tell our fathers, our Father in heaven, what we need. Have you ever told God what you would like him to do? Of course. He says, bring your needs to me. Does he always say yes? Fortunately, no. Many times he says no because he knows what we need, not what we want. Matthew 10, 29. He's talking about anxiety, and people are uptight. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the hairs on your bald head, it doesn't say bald, but the hairs on your head, I needed to wake you up there, are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He's talking about a common bird. He even gets more common. He talks about the grass or weeds. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, 
and gone tomorrow, tomorrow stone of the furnace, will he not much more clothe you of your little faith? He's demonstrating the goodness of our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father always does what is best for his children. And God's best involves suffering. And God's best involves more grace than the suffering. If he cares about the sparrow and he cares about the grass, he will surely care for us. God is gracious and merciful in the middle of our suffering. One New Testament commentator, James, says in James 5.11b, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is what? Full of compassion and merciful. And see, our flesh goes, well, if you really were full of compassion and merciful, why didn't you just not let him suffer at all? Because God had purposes larger than Job's. And God has purposes larger than ours. If God gave us everything we asked for whenever we wanted it, what would we turn out like? The same thing as the teenagers whose parents never say no. What do you get? Not maturity, not selflessness, not humility. God uses all things, including suffering, because he's compassionate and merciful, and he wants to make us like Jesus. God doesn't keep us from trials, but he promises to be with us through the trials. Now, one of the good news is, and you need to take this to heart, God never punishes his children for sin. Ever. Your sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Your sin debt is zero. It's been paid for at the cross. But God does use trials to purify us, to draw us closer to him, and to prepare us for heaven. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.8, every time I think my life is bad, I read this and I, I have to humble myself. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Four, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He echoes that thought in Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's the principle. We can endure earthly suffering when we see it through the lens of eternal glory. We can endure earthly suffering when we see it through the lens of eternal glory. And this speaks to us, for those of you that wear glasses, you understand what happens if your glasses are fuzzy, foggy, dirty, you get a distorted view of things. We look at heaven through earthly eyes. And so we don't think it's that good. We need to look at earth through heaven's eyes. Then we will see this place accurately because we're looking at it from God's point of view. 
Now, Job's suffering in total probably lasted 180 days, somewhere, say six months. He lived, to our knowledge, about 210 years. Six months out of a 200-year lifespan doesn't seem like a long time, does it? Yeah, six months of suffering, 199, 100, you know, 209 and a half years of blessing and prosperity. Have you ever had chronic pain that you couldn't get rid of? It can grind you down and wear you out. It's exhausting. And all you think about is, how do I get rid of the pain? Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, our afflictions are multifaceted. Every single area of our life is under attack to the point of death, and yet Paul never lost hope. And he never lost hope because what he ultimately hoped for wasn't in this life. And that's where we get set up. We, our hope is here, and if it doesn't change here, we lose heart. Here is not forever. Heaven is forever. We hope in the wrong things. That's why we get depressed. Paul says, don't put your hope on the visible, the temporal, the eternal. Put your hope on the invisible, the eternal, and the heavenly. When we value the eternal more than the earthly, then what happens here on earth only matters insofar as it affects eternity. So when our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones are going through hard times, our first response is we want to take away the pain. We want to fix it. Maybe God's got purpose in the pain of your loved ones. Maybe they won't come back to him without it. So don't try and fix it. Pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray that the Lord will show you how to be of assistance. And the Lord has told this big mouth man, shut your mouth, let me work. I'm working in the life of your loved ones. Whoa, I thought I could fix it. No, you're going to get in the way. I'll tell you what to do, when to do it. You listen to me like you want them to listen to me. What a conflict, right? Life isn't fair, but life on earth is not all there is. See, suffering can make us long for heaven, which it should. That's our eternal home, right? It can clarify our priorities. I know you know people who have experienced severe sickness and sometimes terminal illnesses like cancer, and they've commented it's one of the best things that ever happened to them because it showed them what was really, really important and what was just not even a waste of time. I mean, just completely valueless. See, Paul followed Christ and he suffered like Christ, but it was worth it because it focused him on the glory that was coming, not the pain that was passing away. Jesus said it's like a mother in labor, about ready to give birth. And the labor pains are intense, and it's agonizing. But when her child is born, she forgets all the anguish because of the joy of what? Holding this new life. And that's what heaven is going to be like. We will not be remembering the pain. We've said this before. No matter how painful life is on earth, remember it's only temporary. It's only temporary. And heaven is forever, and it can never be taken away. If you want to be encouraged, some of the greatest musical expressions of hope for heaven come from what we call Negro spirituals, African-American spirituals, even Southern gospel. It's all about what? Heaven. And they're focused on heaven because this life is so extremely painful. 
If you think heaven is on earth, you're not thinking about heaven. You're thinking about maintaining your goodies here. But when this life is painful, you get focused on eternity. That's the only time you're worth anything to God. Right? Because that's when you're thinking like he thinks. Eternity, eternity, eternity. Getting people into heaven. That's all that's going to matter. If they have a peaceful, prosperous, wonderful life here and they die at 100 years old and spend eternity in hell, what good was that? Nothing. We need to be thinking about eternity. You know, give a listen to Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. There is a bomb in Gilead, deep river, this train. Just scroll through and listen to the lyrics. They're all about heaven because this life is painful. Here's the last principle. God is enough for whatever we need. God is enough for whatever we need. God himself is enough whether we have much or when we lose it all. And Job teaches us that. We don't need to know why God does what he does if we know him. See, human wisdom is inadequate to understand all the purposes of God. We get ourselves into deep trouble when we demand that God explain to us because we think we're smart enough to understand it if he told us. We're not that smart. He's infinite, and we're very finite. He's planning for what's going to matter for eternity, and we're not. You know, there are some things in life we will never understand, and there are some problems in this life that are not going to get solved until we get to heaven. And we just have to accept that. We don't know, so we cry out to God. We pray. We do prayer requests here, and we pray for our loved ones, and we'll pray for them until we run out of breath and we go to heaven because we don't know what God's going to do. But God says, you pray without ceasing. And from time to time, God will open the door and let him see what he's doing. We were in Colorado this week, and we had some friends who got an answer to prayer when we're busy shopping, and they've been praying for this for years. And they got a text from their daughter. It says, I broke up with yada yada. You never know. Sometimes the Lord gives you a little glimpse and he's been working for years and you didn't see any of it. And then he opens the door and gives you a little glimpse that he's busy. We don't need to understand why we're suffering in order to endure it. What we do need to know is God. We need to know him better. Because drawing near to God in worship is always the right response. Whether you're being blessed with abundance or whether you're being blessed with suffering. God's grace can include suffering, but his grace is always greater than any circumstances we face. He told Paul, my grace, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And Paul said, bring on the human weakness because I want your power in my life. That's what his presence does. It gives us power and perspective and peace. And the Bible is filled with people who had this attitude. In Exodus 33, Israel sinned with a golden calf Followed down and worshipped, had an orgy at the foot of the mountain. Just after they received the Ten Commandments, and God is so angry, he says, I'm not going to lead you into, Egypt, into Canaan. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going to go because I would destroy you. I'm so angry with you. And Moses intercedes for the nation. He says, I want nothing less than God himself. And he says, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. I want you and nothing less than you. And God says, okay, based on your word, I'm going to forgive them, and I will personally lead you into 
into the promised land. Because Moses believed that no matter what happened on the journey, the only thing that mattered was God's presence. And that's the bottom line for us as well. No matter what happens in your life, it doesn't matter what happens in your life. The only thing that matters is God's presence with you in this journey called life. That's the bottom line. Jesus promised, I will never leave you, forsake you. David said in Psalm 27, he says, one thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord. If you're going to pray for God, one thing, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The most important thing in his life, and this is the king who had it all, was an intimate, ongoing relationship with God himself. At the end of the book, Job acknowledges the same thing. He says in Job 41.5, I have heard about you of the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. See, God never explained why he suffered, and now that Job knew God personally, had an intimate relationship with God, he didn't need to know why. God himself was his mouth. Job finally understood that God's in control of all things, that everything God does is good and right and in our best interest, regardless of circumstances. Because God is completely sovereign and totally good, God now trusted, Job now trusted God with everything in his life. John Piper says we should be satisfied with God's will for our life, regardless if we understand it or not. Because God created us to be satisfied with him, only him. The things of this life will never satisfy your soul, no matter how many of them you get. The God of the Bible loves people, and he uses all things, including pain and problems, to draw people close to himself. The book of Job illustrates God's sovereignty and God's grace in his relationship with people. You know, it's, it's an absolutely big mouth statement to say God is enough for whatever we need. Whatever we need. So Marin and I spent some time with some friends in Colorado. We fly back home. Last night, or, or yesterday, we get to the airport, I don't know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock, and of course the car battery is dead. You know, it's been sitting there for a week in, in, in really cool weather here, right, you know? And uh, so we call AAA, and they say, we'll be right out. Not so much. So we're not sure when they're going to come. We'll call you. So we sit in the car and wait and sweat and sweat. And, you know, Mr. Mature here is going. And the Holy Spirit says, you're going to tell everybody tomorrow that God is enough for what you need. You can't deal with any sweat for an hour. Suck it up, big boy. You know, so I'm repenting and repenting. And then we get a text. from a dear friend whose 50-year-old son died. Don't know why. And I had to humble myself. And I said, I don't know what suffering is like. I know what that suffering is like. But not having a battery, it's inconvenient. So it took us three hours to get the battery. By that time, we'd lost a little water weight and lots of patients got exercised. And I had to humble myself multiple times. And I read the paper this morning, and another dear friend, 38-year-old son, died. Whatever 
you need, God is enough. Nothing else is enough. Nothing. And when we go chasing for things other than him, we set ourselves up for failure and disappointment. Okay, let's review, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Lord willing, next week we'll be in the Philippians. So here's our summary. Number one, God is sovereign over everything all the time. And there are circumstances this week you're going to have to remember that. Number two, suffering is inevitable in a sinful world, but God uses troubles and trials to purify us from pride and deepen our dependency on him. Number three, the God of the Bible is the perfect father who always does what is best, and he may allow suffering, but he always gives grace. And the corollary, his grace is always superabundantly greater than our suffering. Number four, we can endure earthly suffering when we see it through the eyes of eternal glory. Ask God to give you eternal perspective on present problems. And lastly, God is enough, more than enough for whatever we need. Thank you for hanging with us for these weeks in Job. It has been an enormously rewarding study for me, hopefully for you as well. Um, you all are precious people to me, and it's a privilege to do life together and to serve our King. Now that you know, Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.